0: the teaching of god's word and now with today's message here is our teacher
1: as you make your way to galatians chapter 6 let me tell you the true story of a young songwriter Back in 92, Isaac was an 18-year-old pastor's kid who grew up attending church every Sunday. Now, he loved the Lord, but he thought that the music in church was awful. It was slow, and it was sad. It was depressing, and hardly any young people were singing along. And Isaac was fed up with it, so he finally started complaining to his dad about it. And he said, Dad, the music at church stinks. When are we going to sing some new songs? I love his dad's response. He said, son, if you think you can do better, why don't you write some new songs for the church? Well, that's exactly what Isaac did that week. He wrote two new songs for the next Sunday. And when they sang them, there was a mixed reaction. Every time you introduce anything new in a church, there's always a mixed reaction. Most of the older people hated it, not because it went against the Bible, but because it went against tradition. But most of the young people were inspired. And so Isaac, he just kept on writing, 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 and writing, writing new songs. But I'm not talking about 1992, am I? I'm talking about the year 1692. That's when Isaac Watts started writing hymns. And eventually he wrote over 600 songs and hymns of praise, including joy to the world. Now before Isaac Watts, the only music in church was the singing or chanting of Psalms. That's brutal young Isaac, he launched a revolution and it stirred up a big controversy. For most of his life, his music, consider this, for most of his life, his music was considered to be too radical to be sung in most churches. But he based every one of his songs on a passage of scripture. And one of his most loved songs comes from our text, Galatians 6.14. The song was titled originally, Crucifixion to the world by the cross of Christ. I can see why that title didn't catch on. This song has a different title today. We sung it this morning, a song that was considered too radical to sing in the churches back in the 1600s. But reflect on those words because they sum up the teaching of Galatians chapter 6 when I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. This morning, I want to talk to you about the harvest of everlasting life, a life that rests on the grace of God, a life that is lived out by the power of God in us, a life lived because he died and lived again for us, a life that is willing to surrender pride because we know that the only thing we have to boast about is Jesus Christ himself. Galatians 6, join me there this morning, if you would, starting in verse 6. Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Now, if you've been with us through our walk together in the book of Galatians, we have seen that Christ has set us free, free from a lot of things, free from the law, free from the power of sin, free from death. But that doesn't mean that there's no consequence for our sin. That doesn't mean that we can just live in licentiousness. You see, the freedom given to us in Jesus Christ means we are now free to serve one another, free to live by the power of the Spirit, free to live in love for one another. These are things that you could not do before Christ set you free. But we reap what we sow, meaning there are still consequences for how you live, for your actions in life. And Paul is telling us that the best way to use your money is to share it with those who teach you God's word. Now, why is this true? Well, there is a relationship that develops between a pastor and the people, especially when the word of God is being taught week after week. We share in the ministry together. We are sharing in the ministry of Jesus Christ together. We share our lives together. I have the privilege and the honor of being able to share the word of God with you week after week. And it's the responsibility of biblically of the believers to share in all good things with him who teaches. But we don't share because we have to. We share because we want to out of love. There's a difference here. It's a joy, not a job for me to be your pastor and to be able to teach you the word of God. It is a joy. It is a privilege. But studying and teaching the word of God, it takes time. It takes both time and discipline. My work for this church You guys see the tip of the iceberg, you see about an hour or two a week, but my work for this church means on the average, and I'm underestimating about 60 to 70 hours a week is what I'm putting in, and I don't want to know how many that poor gal sitting there in the front row puts in, I'm guessing at least 20 to 30 hours herself but we don't do it for a paycheck. I don't do it for a paycheck. I'm not here for that. If I wanted to do that, I'd go get a secular job. I'm here. My family and I are here because we believe the Bible and we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a joy to serve. It's a privilege. It's, to be honest, it should also be a joy for you, a joy to help support the work here and support your pastor, to support those who have dedicated their lives to the ministry of the word of God, knowing that We have bills to pay just like the rest of you, just like anyone else. And if we're burdened with them, that doesn't help us. It frees us up when we can pay our bills to work together as the church family to serve Jesus Christ. Now, thank the Lord that we don't tax you for services like they did in the Bible days. That would just be plain awful. That would be awful. I, I don't know if I could go. You remember that when Paul first wrote this, Jews were required to pay 10% of their money to support their priests. That was the law at the time. Gentiles had to pay taxes and make vows to support the work. But now that Christ has freed you from the law, it doesn't mean that pastors should somehow get less if the love of Christ is your motivation. You see, when you're taxed, what do you do? Think of the government. When you're taxed, what do you do? You pay the minimum. You're trying to cheat the system. You're looking for deductions. You don't want to pay more than you have to. And you do it with a grudge because, come on, you don't really want to have to pay. No one wants to do that. But love, see, love leads us down a different path, doesn't it? We should be generous to share as much as we can with a grateful heart unto the Lord. So if love is the motivation in your giving, the Bible says you're going to get a return on your investment, but not how so many preach it today. Let's look at it in our next two verses. Do not be deceived; God is not mocked for whatever a man sows that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. but he who sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap what? everlasting life. Let me tell you what this is not saying. This is not saying that if you just start giving, you're going to get a big mansion or you're going to get everlasting life. You can't buy your way to heaven. That's not what this is saying. I do not think, let's be honest, I do not think most Christians believe these two verses right here. Those that give unto the Lord, those who share what God has given them gain so much more than you could ever give. If you sow corn, you reap what? Corn. If you sow wheat, you reap wheat. Whatever a person sows, he will also reap. It's just a basic principle of life. And if you look at the context, Paul applies it to sharing of all good things. Now, Paul is talking about money. How do we know this? Because the only other place in the Bible and the only other place that Paul used the same exact metaphor is when he encouraged people to give money to the poor. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9, Paul is taking up a collection for the poor believers in Jerusalem, and in his letter, he encouraged them to be generous. And he tells them in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, he says, but this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. In 2 Corinthians 9, he's talking about how much money you give. Here in Galatians 6, he's talking about where you put your money. And since he's talking to farmers, what do you think he does? He's using the metaphor of a farmer, of sowing and reaping. And as a Christian, see the principle is this, as a Christian, you're free. You're free to spend your money any way you want. You can spend it only on yourself or you can spend it on others. But know this. Here's the principle. If you choose to spend your money only on yourself, if if you choose to live for yourself constantly in this world, it will ruin your life. And I believe these two verses are the reason a lot of Christians are miserable. That's what the Bible means when it says in verse eight, for he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap Corruption. See, if you spend your money only on things that you can get for yourself, if you chase after every little new toy, every new little gadget that there is out there, only to chase after all the things that you want for yourself out there, I believe Paul's saying it's going to ruin you. It's going to take you down a path that you don't want to go. It will corrupt you. It will destroy your life. Now, this is not about your eternal destiny, but your relationship with God, your closeness or your fellowship with God. If you live this way, I believe the Bible teaches that you will find yourself becoming a very self-centered person, filled with envy, filled with greed, and arrogant, because that is what comes when we follow after our sin nature. Now, Paul says God is not mocked. In how you live, it has consequences. You see, anytime, on any principle in the Bible, anytime we ignore God's counsel, what happens? We suffer, don't we? Anytime. So here's the thought. You cannot sit and claim to accept the whole counsel of God and then just start picking and choosing the parts that you want to obey. Wouldn't that be nice if we could? But we can't. We can't do that. To do such a thing is to treat God with contempt. It is to show that you have very weak faith. There will be no reward for selfish living. But if you learn as a believer in Christ to spend your money on spiritual things, to use God's resources that he has entrusted to you for his glory, you will get a return on that investment that lasts forever. That's the end of verse eight. But he who sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. Not a verse about eternal salvation. It is about eternal rewards in the coming kingdom of God. This is not about receiving the free gift of life because that's something that's free. You just receive it. This is about reaping, reaping everlasting life, an abundant life centered on Jesus Christ. It is the very life that God shares with his people, with his believers. You see, if you plant a watermelon seed in the spring, don't expect grapes in the fall. And if you don't like watermelons, then don't plant watermelons. If you want a close relationship with God, part of that involves trusting God with your finances. If you want to sow the seed of living for yourself, don't be surprised when you reap the harvest and you hurt your own walk with God. And this is why I think it's so important to go through this text. See, the question is this, what are you spending your money on? Does the work of Jesus Christ come first in your life, or does it not even come into the picture? God prompts us, Paul says. God prompts us. The Spirit prompts us to use our money for his plans and his purpose. And the question is, do we trust him? This goes so much deeper than just our wallet, doesn't it? It goes so much deeper than just our wallet. Paul is letting us know that when Christians fail to honor him with their money, their spiritual life, it can never really be what God intended giving unto the Lord that takes faith. I mean, when you get your paycheck, when you get your money and then all of a sudden you start turning around and writing it off to someone else, that takes faith. It takes trust that even though you give part of your income back to God, that he's going to honor that and he's still going to meet your needs. But if you show him week after week that you don't really trust him, I wonder, Christians, just how close you are in your relationship to God. Jesus himself said these words, you know them, for where your treasure is there, your heart will also be. Don't give out of guilt. That's not what we're talking about. And we're not saying just give once because Mark preached on money and and then you're gonna forget about it for the rest of your life because you're convicted. But learn to give as a part of your relationship with Christ. Learn to give sacrificially because you believe God, you believe the Bible, and you want to live for his purpose. See, if you sit and feed your flesh, if you live for every craving that comes along your way that your sin nature has, it's going to destroy you. But if you live for God and let his ways guide your life, it will lead to a deeper walk with Christ and his eternal reward in glory. Now these are future rewards, so you're not going to get a big jet or a mansion or a fancy car just because you gave to the Lord. Not that God is going to make you rich here and now because you gave, but this is about a heart change, learning to live for Jesus Christ, learning to put God first. Paul warned the church of Corinth about this. He warned the church of Corinth about failing to invest the kingdom of God. And when he said this in chapter three of his letter to them, he said, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is, and what what he says next. He's talking about the judgment seat of Christ for believers. He says, if anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. And then verse nine, back in Galatians, it says, and let us not grow weary while doing good for in due season, we shall reap if we do not lose heart. This is still about money. This is still about sharing with those who teach God's word. It always reminds me of the mom who walked in on her six year old son and found him just crying and she said to him what's the matter and he said I just figured out how to tie my shoes and she looked at him and said well honey that's absolutely wonderful you're growing up but why are you crying about that and because he said now I'll have to do it every day for the rest of my life (laughs) maybe you feel that way this morning huh about giving back to the Lord It is a part of growing up in the faith. It is a part of growing up in the faith, realizing that the relationship we have, it should move you past rules in your life. The Christian focused on Christ understands that God is teaching us to take up some new responsibilities as a child of the king. And Paul is saying, don't be discouraged. You will reap a harvest if you learn to support the work of Christ and make this a part of your relationship with God. The day will come in his kingdom when you reap that harvest. But don't quit. Don't look for the reward here and now. Don't do it because you think you're going to get something here and now from it. Look for the opportunities that God gives you to support his work. See a Christian that keeps on looking to Christ. A Christian that keeps on looking forward to the return of Christ sets his mind on living for the Savior, knowing that the final harvest will come when Christ returns. Verse 10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Our first responsibility, and we need to learn this principle in the word of God, our first priority when we help others should be the church, the family of God, the household of faith. Caring for the legitimate needs in God's family, especially when persecution and hard times come. Now, this is not asking us to give to others in the church who refuse to work. This is not asking us to give to others in the church because we have to. No one is under the law. Give because you want to, give because God has freely given to you. Love understands that we're all going to be in eternity together. We're all going to be in glory forever together. So help if there is a just cause. Help if you can. Now in verse 11, Paul shows that Paul used a scribe to write this letter. But now Paul, with his eyesight probably just as bad as mine, he starts to write the closing himself, to authenticate his message and to close out his message to the people he so loved and to personally point out from the hand of an apostle of Jesus Christ that we are saved by grace through faith and that we are to grow in that same grace. Then he says, starting in verse 12, as many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. So here's the teaching. If you want to be free from the pressure to live up to the expectations of others, don't live to try to impress other people. Instead, focus on Jesus Christ. Focus on what he did on the cross. It's like the old story of an old man and his son on their way to the market. And the old man was walking behind when they went through the first village. And the people, they called this old man a fool because he didn't ride on the donkey as they went along. So he climbed up on that animal's back. Then in the second village, as they walked along, the people said the old man was cruel to let the child walk while he enjoyed the ride on the donkey. So then the old man got off and he put the boy on the donkey. But then they got to the third village and the people accused the boy of being lazy for making the old man walk. So the man got on the donkey with the boy. Well, then in the fourth village, the people, they felt sorry for the donkey because he was made to carry two people. So then when the old man and his son finally made it to the market, the old man was seen carrying the donkey. (laughs) Some people feel the need to impress others. People want to be liked. People want to be respected. But all they end up doing is carrying, hear me, a heavy, heavy burden because they're just putting on a show for others. It's not honest, and it's not of God, and that is the heart of the legalist. See, God doesn't want us to live this way. That's what Paul's telling us. God doesn't want us to live that way. God doesn't want us always worried about what other people think. You know, the cross in the first century was a cruel, cruel, wicked punishment. It was offensive, reserved for the worst criminals, the scum of the earth. It was a horrible, horrible instrument of torture and death. So horrible that the Roman citizens could not typically be hung on a cross, only what they considered to be the barbarians. So when the Christians began to proclaim that Jesus Christ had to die on the cross for our sins, many people were just taken back. They were offended by such a comment. What do you mean that my sin, my sin demands the penalty of the cross? I'm not that bad. How dare you suggest that I deserve crucifixion and that Christ had to pay that kind of penalty for my sin? See, that's... That's the reaction that so many people had at the preaching of the cross. The cross was offensive and many Christians found themselves hanging on it in the first century. But the Hebrew world and in the camp of the legalists, if you were a man, circumcision meant something. It meant that you belonged to the right group, the correct group. And if you were uncircumcised, you were an outsider. And that is where the legalists came in. They wanted to be accepted by the right people, so they stopped preaching the cross and started preaching circumcision. They were trying to avoid persecution. They were scared. They were like little babies afraid of persecution, but that put them into the bondage of trying to live to impress other people. It put them under a burden of trying to worry about what other people thought. And so the solution that Paul gives here is to stop worrying about trying to avoid persecution. Don't live your life on the defensive. Stop living your life just trying to avoid being hurt. Stop trying to dodge the pain, the ridicule or the shame that you think others might put on you. You're to live to please God, not men. You know, I honestly couldn't do the work for one day here in this church or any church that God has called me to if I sat there and worried about what people think. I serve Christ. I let Christ direct my life. Medical missionaries around the world, they know this to be true. Some of them stand in such lonely places all throughout the Arab world or in the communist Asian world, knowing that if they are fortunate enough to be used by God to lead a person to Jesus Christ, that new Christian that they lead to Christ will soon face persecution and isolation and many will die immediately for their faith. And I think of Christ when he said this in Luke 9, 23, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow who? Follow him. This is learning to become a disciple. It's moving beyond the basics of your faith and learning to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. One who grows up in the faith instead of just coming and being a baby in the faith, learning to deny self, to follow Jesus Christ. You know, More and more every day we live in a culture that is very hostile, very hostile to the Christian faith. So expect ridicule. Expect it when people make fun of you for believing in Jesus Christ. That should not stop us for a second because the only thing that really matters is our relationship with Jesus Christ. And this should set us free from this mindset of mindlessly trying to live to impress others. Many of you know the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He died in a Nazi concentration camp because of his faith in Jesus Christ. And he once said this about Jesus. Listen carefully to what he said about our Savior. He said, Christ kept himself from suffering till his hour had come. But when it did come, he met it as a free man, seized it, and mastered it. And that is exactly what Bonhoeffer did himself when the hour of danger came upon him. He acted with responsibility and he acted in freedom because his life was not about avoiding being hurt. It was about following Jesus Christ. See, I believe that freedom is found when you when you as a Christian, as a believer in Christ, make your life about following Christ, not just sitting there trying to always avoid the pain. And Paul says, stop trying to promote yourself. Stop doing things just to have something to brag about. That was the problem in verse 13. These legalists were a bunch of hypocrites because that's what every legalist is. They get hyped up on themselves and their pride. They have no place leading the people of God. Paul is saying, they don't keep the law, but they, they want you to. Sure they do. They want you to keep the law just so they can boast. See, the legalists were not about helping get people to grow closer to Jesus Christ. It was all a show to brag about the number of converts that they had. It was an outward pretense that was not based on faith. So Paul says, stop trying to prove yourself to other people and live for the glory of God. Live for your identity and purpose in Jesus Christ. It's a very insecure man who always likes to boast and talk about himself. This is not the path of the spiritually mature because instead your focus and your pride should be centered only on Christ. Let his sacrifice on the cross amaze you. Don't boast in what you can do for God. Boast in what he's already done in you and for you. Amen. Starting in verse 14, Paul says this, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but what? A new creation. I hope you see how powerful this text is. Paul is proclaiming that next to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, next to the love, the very love that was shown to us on the cross, the things that we crave after, they mean nothing. The cross had stood as a hideous, horrible, terrible form of execution, but now has become a symbol to Paul for the victory that Jesus Christ won. Paul found that through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, he now looked at the world as if it were on a cross, meaning simply this. He considered the world as good as dead to him and himself as good as dead to the world. The things that Paul once chased after in the world, they no longer attracted him. See, the cross, it sets us free. It sets us free from the power of sin, free from having to follow after this lost world, free from the enslavement of having to try to impress other people. The redeemed in Jesus Christ, the believers in Christ, they've been perfectly accepted by God. So hear the teaching of the word of God within each and every one of us. There is a need. We all have a deep desire within to be loved, but your love needs, hear me, can never be satisfied by another person. Your love needs can never be satisfied by another person, not by your mom, not by your dad, not by your husband or even your wife, only by God himself. Find the acceptance that you look for in life in Christ. See, the cross of Christ made it possible for God to accept us as holy and righteous in his sight. So Christian, boast about that. Boast about the work of Christ on the cross. Boast about what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. One of the reasons I left the road and quit doing conferences is because what I saw on the road disgusted me. I'll tell you what I saw. I saw it in closed rooms and I saw it on big stages, man after man after man, at one conference after another, in town after town, standing up and trying to impress others. That's not of God. It's not of God. God wants his people to dig in and be humble servants. We're just the tools. And apart from him, what does scripture say? We can do nothing. So don't sit around and think that you're so smart that God needs you because he doesn't need you. He loves you. He wants to use you, but he doesn't need you. And that is the key, I believe, to understanding his mercy and his grace. So you don't boast in yourself. You don't boast in what you've done because your best achievements in life are meaningless unless they are rooted in Jesus Christ. And that's why in verse 15, Paul says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but what? A new creation, a new creation. You can't earn God's grace. You cannot earn God's grace. But don't tell me that his grace is soft on sin because it changes us. It changes us from the inside out. His grace makes us a new creation in Christ, convicts us of sin. So boast about this, boast about this change, this work that God is doing within. Don't talk about what you're doing for God. Talk about what God is doing in you. Do you see the difference? Then you'll find peace then you can find your purpose in living for Jesus Christ. Verse 16. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Now, what is this rule? He's just been talking about rules for so many verses and so many chapters. What is this rule he's talking about? Well, it's back in verse 15. Walk according to the new creation in Christ that God has made you to be. Walk according to that, walk by the spirit, live for the inward work that God is doing in you. Notice with me carefully in verse 16, there are two groups of people, as many as walk according to this rule. Paul's referring to Gentiles redeemed by faith in the church. And then at the end of the verse, and upon the Israel of God, who's that? That's the messianic Jews that were part of the church of Jesus Christ. The Church is not Israel. And Israel's not the church. That's a plain understanding of Scripture. Everywhere else in the New Testament, 65 times, Israel always refers to physical Jews. Never once in the writings of the early church up until 160 AD did anyone try to identify the church as Israel and Israel as the church. It didn't happen up until then. Now it's become the default reform position, but it's coming from tradition, it's not coming from the plain teaching of Scripture. The church is never called in the Bible the spiritual Israel or new Israel. Israel is only used to refer to the people of the nation, or as it is here, the believing remnant within. Jews and Gentiles alike can find God's peace and mercy. If they look to Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross instead of looking to themselves. Any believer, Paul is saying, can live like this by simply looking to what God has done for them instead of running around trying to impress others. Howard Hendricks, some of you know the name, he used to tell the story when he was teaching at Dallas Theological Seminary of a man who got called into his boss's office. And when he got there, his boss offered him a sweet, sweet, sweet promotion there would be a very nice pay raise and there would be extra benefits and the title and the prestige that would come from this new position in the company. There was only one catch, his boss said. If you want the job, you're going to have to sacrifice everything. And then he told him this, the job must come even before your family. Take it or leave it. Do you know what this man did? He left it. He left it. He walked out the door and never returned again. And that was a smart man. Because the freedom that we have to live for Christ means we have the freedom to say no to a driven lifestyle that is always focused on what we're doing here, focused on ourselves. Because we don't have to impress anyone. We know what's really important. And that is the work that God is doing on the inside of us because of what he's accomplished on the cross. Sure, to live like this is going to cost you you may be persecuted, you may be ridiculed, and Paul certainly was. And he says in verse 17, from now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. There was a time when Paul was so proud of his mark of circumcision, but now Paul had been marked in a different way. Because Paul had been beaten. Paul had been stoned. Paul had been left for dead. His body had permanent scars because of what he suffered for the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Paul saw these marks as signs of ownership. They identified him as a servant of God. Paul was not a slave to the law. Paul was not a slave to the need to impress anyone. He had the marks on his body to prove that he served another. He served Jesus Christ. And so Paul ended this beautiful epistle to the Galatian churches by telling the church that if these legalists had any marks on their bodies that showed they had suffered for Jesus Christ, then let them be shown. Otherwise, stop bothering Paul. Stop bothering him. Because Paul would rather fight for truth and for grace and stand alone for the gospel of Jesus Christ than to give in to the lies of the legalists. Paul lived to please God, no matter where that took him in life even his own suffering. And so he ended with the words, Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Grace is exactly what these believers needed. You might have heard about Wycliffe Bible translators. Let me tell you the true story about their namesake. In the 14th century, John Wycliffe was a very highly educated professor at Oxford. He read the Bible in the original languages, in Hebrew and in Greek. And as he read the Bible and compared it to the church of his day, he noticed that the two, they were not lining up. See, he couldn't find anything in scripture that justified a pope, and he couldn't find anything in scripture that gave the church the right to rule with an iron fist and control its members like it did. And so John Wycliffe did something that was illegal. It was illegal. He had the audacity to translate the Bible into English. Well, the Catholic Church ordered him not to do the translation, but he just kept on. He kept doing it. And he was arrested and charged with heresy. And he was removed from his teaching position at Oxford. And he was heartbroken. And he died of a stroke just a few years later while he was preaching to a small group of Christians, like-minded Christians. But 54 years after he died, Wycliffe was still so hated by the church that the Pope ordered for his body to be dug up. And his body was then burned along with his books and his Bibles that he made. And then his ashes were sprinkled on the Thames River in London. And the enemies of John Wycliffe, oh, they celebrated. They said, Wycliffe is dead. Wycliffe is forgotten. But he's not forgotten, is he? If you are holding an English Bible in your hand this morning, this is the harvest that John Wycliffe has left for us. You see, he stood up to a legalistic church and it cost him dearly. He never saw it in his lifetime. He never saw it in his day. But he was faithful to plant seeds of obedience to Christ based on his love for the scripture. But the question before us that I want to ask you this morning is what are you going to leave behind? What are you going to leave behind? You see, today we are enjoying a harvest of the sacrifice and the service of faithful men and women who have come before us in Jesus Christ. But what the ministry is, is this. Ministry is giving in your life when you feel like keeping. It's praying for others when you need to be prayed for yourself. It's feeding others when your own soul is hungry. It's living out truth before people even when you can't see the results. It's hurting with other people when your own hurt in your own life can't even be spoken of. It's keeping your word when it's not easy, when it's difficult, and it's being faithful when your flesh, when your body, when your sinful desires want to run the other direction, want to run away. So be faithful to Jesus Christ, friends, and be patient because you may not see your reward of the good harvest until you get to glory, until you get to heaven. I love the words of the song by Steve Green that says this, and we'll close with these words. Oh, may all who come behind us find us faithful. May the fire of our devotion light their way. May the footprints that we leave lead them to believe and the lives we inspire them to obey.
0: Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com. Or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879259, Wasilla, Alaska 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.